Amen. Good morning, guys. Welcome to our warm service. Didn't exactly plan it, but hey. One year, some of you remember this, one year the, uh, when we were meeting at the high school, we got there on Sunday morning, and uh, they had bug-bombed the whole place. And so we couldn't get in to like, I mean, like we tried, we went in to try to set up and everything, but everybody was like, <coughs> uh, and so we ended up bringing our stuff outside and uh, doing a little worship service like outside the front doors of the high school. And it was great. And so that was a lot hotter than it is now. So I'm sure that we'll survive uh, just fine. Now, what's funny though, so I preached a few weeks ago and I accidentally preached for a solid hour. Uh, so um, uh, today I'm going to go for an hour and a half and... <laughs> kidding, kidding. Uh, I'm not going to do that, especially not uh, with the uh, present situation. So uh, it'll be fine. I'll be a little more conscious of your time. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'm really happy to be um, continuing on in our spiritual discipline series. Uh, today we're going to talk about feasting, uh, like Blake said, and, and like he said before, it's not usually something you think about. Uh, there's not like, like the 11th commandment is not thou shalt feast unto the Lord, and here's how yeah. you should do it. Um, <laughs> And so we're going to look at what the Bible says about uh, feasting. I'm not going to blow anybody's minds. Um, but, but I do hope that we'll kind of, that we'll look at sharing meals and look at the idea of feasting uh, from a point of view that maybe we haven't thought of before. Um, because it's a, a point of view that we can apply to a lot of our lives. Uh, where we can see the Lord's hand uh, working in us and working in our lives than we, uh, in a different way than we have before. Uh, usually, uh, you guys know, we, we preach the Bible uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a, a, a book of the Bible, uh, because I think that's the best way, you know, you see what was said in the context. Um, our summer sermon, every, our sermon, summer sermon series every year is about uh, looking at individual topics, which is also a beneficial thing to do. So this one's going to be kind of a wide-angle view at the idea of feasting. Um, and then we'll, we'll close out with some more kind of zoomed-in practical things. Um, if you've known me for very long, you probably, have, maybe you've noticed, that you've never seen me or my family around on Fourth of July weekend. Um, we are never here. Uh, we are never at home. Uh, for the past 10 fourths of July, uh, we have hung out with some friends of ours who live outside of Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, they live on the Tom Bigby River. They live inside of a country song, right? Like after you've been driving down the two-lane highway where you're passing rows of corn and cotton uh, for, I don't know, 15 minutes, then you get on a dirt road where you drive for another 20 minutes uh, to their house down by the river on Friday night. Um, and so it's, it's great. Uh, we, we, we love going there and it's, it's become like our favorite, like there's Christmas and there's 4th of July. Like they're our favorite times of years, uh, favorite times of year and kind of our year kind of swings between those two, uh, poles. There are a few other families who always end up there. Uh, there's, there's several houses on this road. Some people live there full time and a couple of them are kind of just like weekend river cabins, you know? Um, but there's like kind of this, basically the same crew of people end up there, uh, along this road uh, every 4th of July. And so we all hang out together, all our 4th of July friends, um, who are now more than just our 4th of July friends. We've known our friends Lenny and Emily for a very long time. And uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, we, like, I'm not kidding. Whenever it's winter time and the world is kind of like gloomy and you, know, you kind of get through the slog of like the coldness and whatever, I have like actual dreams about 4th of July weekend. <laughs> I dream about it. I long for it. Uh, I love it that much. 
Uh, one of the things we always do Fourth uh, of July weekend is that we eat like kings. Uh, our friend Lanny is a wizard-level smoker of meats. And so, you know, we'll have ribs and brisket, which is like, that's kind of, the past few years, the brisket's been kind of a newish thing, and he's just, he nails it. Um, anyway, but the thing that always sticks with me from Fourth of July weekend are the hamburgers. There are a few things more American than a hamburger, even though I don't think it originated in America. It's become an American thing. Um, so uh, my father-in-law raises cattle, and so we, for a long time, have gotten all of our beef from him. So whenever we go down for Fourth of July weekend, we've already got all the all the meals planned out. And so we bring a bunch of his meat with us. And this is like, if you're like browning ground beef, it smells like you're cooking a steak. That's how great this meat is. It is just fantastic. Uh, and so we get down there. Uh, we bring it all enough for everybody that's going to be there. And we drive up. And when you drive up to Emily and Lanny's house, Blake's been there, one of the first things you notice is the garden. Uh, our friend Emily has this just magnificent garden with uh, squash and cucumbers and tomatoes and muscadines and blueberries and just it's fantastic uh, so we have all these like fresh ingredients like just out in the yard to go grab for our, our burgers uh, and so you know we get inside we get ready for for dinner and Emily has stopped by the store which is 40 minutes away and uh, gotten the good buns like you know the kind you have to slice open yourself right like deli deli buns right uh, and so she puts a little butter in the pan, and she toasts all the buns in the butter in the pan. Uh, and then we fry up some bacon, the good bacon. We're not talking like cheap bacon here, like the good bacon. We, try, we fry up uh, the bacon. Uh, if you're into this, Lexi usually does a fried egg that she puts on top of her burger. It's not my thing, but I can see how people would enjoy it. Um, and so we got, we got the good mayonnaise, not the squirty mayonnaise, like the good mayonnaise. Uh, we've got uh, like deli cheese. We're not talking Kraft American singles. We're talking like top-notch ingredients for these things. So by the time we are like, we've got our burgers assembled, like you need a mouth extender to get your mouth. I'm not kidding. It's glorious. It is so good. Uh, I think about these. I talk about these burgers throughout the year. Uh, they're, they're that good. Uh, and I get, it's funny, it's weird, you know, I'm a crier or whatever. I get kind of emotional when I'm talking about these hamburgers because, because it's not really just about the burgers, right? It is about the burgers because they are fantastic. But it is not just about the burgers. It's like this magnificent creation, but like we're sitting around a table with our friends who we've known for so long. You know, um, we, uh, when, whenever Emily and Lanny were starting to think about dating, uh, Emily was living in a different country. And so she was like, will you go meet this guy just to make sure he's all right? Uh, and he was. And so, but like, like, we've been, like, we've all been a part of each other's lives for so long together. And so, like, we're eating this, and I'm thinking about our relationship. I'm thinking about the past, past 10 fourths of July. Uh, one year we were out in the boat, and we saw a bald eagle just soar right over us on the 4th of July, right? Like, it was like, I was proud to be an American. And, uh, and uh, there was uh, the year, one time uh, we went with them, and uh, Lanny and his brother, uh, fully clothed, got into the river and caught catfish with their bare arm. Like, not bare, well, they had a sleeve, right? But they, like, caught, like, with their hand, they just reached into a barrel and were catching catfish. Um, the, the summer after my mom died, we went down there and it was like my sanity being restored, right? Like there's this history, there's this whole thing. And so like when I'm eating the 4th of July burger, it's not just about the burger. It's about everything that goes along with it. I'm remembering everything that 
has happened in our, in our family's lives and in our relationship with them. And it just brings this huge amount of gratitude, right? And so it's not just about the burgers. And in a, in a similar way, when we talk about feasting together, it's not just about the food. It's about what the food points us towards, about what the act of feasting points us toward. Um, it's the deeper realities um, of remembering, paying attention, and enjoying things with God-centered gratitude. Uh, it's a way of kind of clearing the fog that can descend upon us, descend upon us in day-to-day life. Uh, so we're going to look at a few different examples from Scripture today that show us how this plays out. Uh, so our first point for today is that feasting is about remembering. Remembering. Uh, we need reminders because it's very easy for us to forget. Uh, I've done some recording at a studio in Memphis called Ardent Studios. And in their lobby for your area, there are all these gold records on the wall, you know. And um, it's cool. There's Grammys sitting on tables. It's cool. But then, like, on this little table, there is a pair of random bronze shoes. They look like the shoes that your dad would have worn in the 90s, right? Like, they're just bronze dad shoes there. Uh, and uh, they belong to a guy named John Fry, who founded the studio in 1966. Um, I only met him once, very briefly, but like people that knew him and worked with him uh, knew that he was notorious for being able to move around this whole studio building complex silently, right? He would just kind of, and, and he, he would like just poke his head in to kind of see what people were working on, see what was going on. And so he would inevitably like silently like sneak into a room and like poke his head over his shoulder when somebody turns around and they're like goofing off and joking around and not doing anything. And he would scare them because he'd be like, all right, let's get back to work. You know, they didn't realize the boss was looking over their shoulder. Uh, so, so he died in 2014 and they had his shoes, his silent stepping shoes bronzed. Maybe so they'd hear them, I don't know. But they, they set them in the front so they could remember, this is why we're here. We're here to get to work, right? Because you can get distracted. You can, get, um, you can forget what's going on, and you need a reminder. And God knows this. God knows this about us that we forget. So throughout Scripture, you see him leaving reminders for his people. Uh, and in Exodus 12, uh, the Lord is getting the people of Israel ready to leave Egypt. Tony read about it, uh, a little bit about it uh, just a minute ago. Um, through Moses, God has already explained to the people um, what the Passover is and how that's going to go down. He told them, he's like, all right, I want you to get dressed. I want you to get your shoes on. I want you to eat the Passover quickly, and I want you to be ready to go when I tell you. Uh, and then it's, it's like the Lord grabs him by the shoulders and looks him in the eyes, and he, he says, I want you to remember this day. You're not going to believe what's about to happen. Literally, like one day they were not going to believe it. Uh, I want you to remember this day. So in verse 14, he says this. He says, this day shall be for you. This is in Exodus chapter 13, or 12, sorry, Exodus 12, 14. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. 
For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. So you got the hustle and bustle of like preparing to leave Egypt. The Israelites know it's about to go down with the Passover. Pharaoh does too, but he didn't want to admit it. And the Lord tells them to be ready. And they're like, yes, Lord. And he says, I want you to remember this day. And they're like, of course, Lord. And he was like, here are some very detailed instructions. You are going to hold the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you do it wrong, you will be cut off from the people of Israel. And they're like, okay, uh, this is kind of random. Don't we have like more important things to be talking about right now? Like we're getting ready to go. Like what is going on? Uh, it also like no leaven. Seems kind of arbitrary, but okay, we can talk about it later. Okay, you know, whatever. So after the Lord gives them all these instructions, they keep the Passover, all the firstborn in Egypt die. You know how that happens. And then in verse 34, it says, uh, so after they all die and Pharaoh tells them to get out, in verse 34, it says, so the people took their dough before it was leavened. They didn't have time. Their kneading bowls were bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. So then they're walking out of Egypt like, I get it. Okay. Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wants us to remember that we had to leave. When God was ready to, to send us out, we had to leave so quickly we didn't have time to wait for the dough to rise. Like, we just, we left. Um, and so a little later, uh, what Tony read earlier, the Lord's reiterating all this about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he says uh, in chapter 13, you shall tell your son on that day, the day whenever they keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. The Lord knew how all this was going to go down. He knew that their children would have little memory of the Exodus and were going to wonder why they kept this feast every year. And so this would be an opportunity for them to recount the goodness of the Lord to their children. It was also a chance for them to remember. He knew that they were going to forget. There, was going to, there would be a day when they were like, I wish we were back in Egypt, right? They, they think that the, the, the present circumstances are harder than what they came out of. They, they think that the Lord has abandoned them, which is not true. So these feasts were meant to remind them of these truths because we can forget. Every spiritual discipline that we have discussed this summer has the same goal, and that is to reorient ourselves around the truth of the gospel. It's like we're on a long drive, and we get kind of relaxed, and we might kind of start to drift a little bit, right? And all we have to do is just correct a little bit with the steering wheel. A little too far to the right, a little too far to the left. Our spiritual disciplines do this for us. When we start to drift a little bit, it helps correct us. So if we end up on the rumble strips, or God forbid, it happens sometimes we start to veer into oncoming traffic in a spiritual way, our spiritual disciplines are meant to bring us back into our lane. And so this is one of the purposes of the feasts of Israel, to kind of reorient them, to get them steered back in the right direction. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from. The Lord instituted seven of these feasts. There are several different ones throughout the year, all different kinds. And it's, although the, the reading of, of the scripture there kind of, it seems a little dry and detailed or whatever, but it's pretty interesting, like how the Lord stationed them throughout the year and what they meant. Uh, but he, they served as a calendar of reminders for the people of God. Uh, of God's faithfulness to them. There were signposts set throughout the year to point back to God. You couldn't not see them. They were like these unavoidable things that you, you had to acknowledge in your life. You had to acknowledge what God was doing. Um, 
When we are consumed with the mundaneness of day-to-day life and everything feels kind of like a grind, it can be really easy to forget the promises of God and the truth of Scripture and the reality of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Feasting is a joyful way to break up this monotony. Uh, Preparing for and celebrating a feast can be uh, one of these signposts that reminds us of the abundant goodness of God um, that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's one of the reasons we take communion every week. Communion isn't a literal feast, but it's a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. The reality of Christ's death and resurrection, and of our salvation and our sanctification. For just a minute, we embody a spiritual reality, and we do it to remember, right? Jesus told us that's what it was for, to do in remembrance of him. It means something, and Scripture calls us to examine ourselves to partake of this meal or to abstain. Uh, it's a purposeful thing, right? Um, so it, communion kind of illustrates the fact that we are to remember, but also that we are to pay attention, which is the second point for today. Uh, feasting is about paying attention. In my epically long sermon a few weeks ago, uh, I talked about distraction. We live in kind of a distracted age, but it's not just like distractions per se. It's really more, they're all attempts to keep ourselves entertained, uh, to spice up the boring moments of our lives. Uh, the, the effect of all this is that we don't pay attention anymore. And we're really hard to impress. Right? There's always something else that we could be doing that would be more entertaining than the thing we are doing right now. It's not true, but that's the way it feels. Um, Mike Cosper talks about this a lot in his book that I mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, it's called Recapturing the Wonder. I'll tell you again, it's really good. Read it. Uh, and so a lot of my thoughts today are kind of influenced from him. Um, But modern life, and this is one of his main points in the book, modern life is devoid of transcendence, like over, you know, like moving beyond kind of the day-to-day physical reality of things. And it's devoid of wonder. The moments when we press beyond the surface of things are few and far between, and the world seems to avoid them as much as possible. And every moment, there's always something more interesting to watch or listen to, and all we got to do is pick up our phones, right? Nothing is really magical anymore or soul-stirring because there's always something else we can do. You know, I, you know it's, I think maybe it originated with the, uh, the button on the remote that like, you can hit like, the last channel. So when the commercial comes on on this thing, I can go to the other thing to keep myself entertained until my show comes back on, right? Uh, it, it's, it's become like a, our culture has kind of become transactional. How efficiently can this particular thing please me? And, and what's going to please me when I'm done with that thing? And then what's going to please me when I'm done with that thing? It's just a string of like, uh, it's like a drug. We just kind of keep like sh- shooting it into ourselves to kind of keep ourselves happy, to keep the endorphins flowing. Um, and it's not, it's not biblical. It's not good. Uh, fast food is a good example of this. I don't think fast food is sinful. I'm probably going to eat fast food on the way home today. Um, but it, the, the idea here is uh, it's, it's kind of a culture. Like we live in a fast food culture. Uh, think about fast food, uh, a burger from Sonic or Burger King or something, compared with the 4th of July burger. Right? One is a commodity and one is like a creation. Right? There's a difference between the two. Uh, with, with fast food, it's, it's make it cheaply, get it hot, serve it, uh, make as much money as you can on it. It's a transaction to meet a basic need so that a person can move on to whatever the next thing is. It's not waste any time preparing the food or thinking much about it. Let's just eat it and get on. It requires very little of us, which is good because we don't have a lot of attention to give uh, a lot of times these days. So... I'm not saying that we should stop eating Sonic or Chick-fil-A or any of those things, but what I'm saying is that this whole thing, it points to a broader point in our culture that we don't want to pay attention. We don't want to do things that require anything of us. We just want some sort of like 
reward or something that makes us feel good for as little as possible, right? That's the goal. Like, how, how little effort can I put into a thing to where it will give me maximum uh, pleasure? During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Lord commanded, for seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. In preparation for this feast, Jewish people, even today, they, like, go crazy kind of like cleaning their house. It's like a thorough cleaning to make sure that there is no leaven on any kitchen surface or shelves or the pantry. They get it all out. It takes effort and attention to detail to prepare for this feast. It's something that's done on purpose. And why? Because it is a tangible reminder. You can hold it in your hands. It's a reminder of Israel's deliverance from Egypt and of God's faithfulness to his people. It's the physical embodiment of the idea that God's people ought not to mix the worship of God, even a little bit, with the idol worship of the culture that surrounded them, the cultures that surrounded them. But it takes effort and thought. Proper worship of God, both in daily life and in corporate gatherings like this, requires our attention. It requires that we dig past the surface to see the deeper spiritual realities of life to see the eternal truth and beauty that God has woven into the fabric of ordinary life. Proper worship of God is not efficient, right? It wouldn't, it's not a good, uh, it wouldn't be a good business. It's not efficient because it's not about us. It's not about making ourselves happy. Worship is about, it's not about maximizing our happiness and minimizing our discomfort. It's, and that's an easy trap for churches to fall into. It happens. True worship humbles us. And it forces us to reckon with the twin realities of our pervasive sin and the magnificent grace of God. That takes time. It's complicated. It's not efficient. It takes effort and attention, but it's worth it. And that's what we were made to do in the first place. That's how God intended it from the beginning. And so when we try to fight back against these tendencies, it's not easy. We have to shake ourselves free from the numbing effect of our culture of entertainment and luxury because God is showing himself to us. If we will just notice it, he is around. He shows himself in every moment in his creation and in his word. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones starts off the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, she says, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, and to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims, and God put it into words, too, and wrote it in a book called the Bible. God instituted these seven feasts as a reminders for Israel, living monuments that required the people to pay attention in a special way that revealed, again, God's faithfulness to them. And when you see God's faithfulness in one way, you start to see it all over the place. Because it's all over the place. And the way kittens chase their tails, and in the poppies, and in baby noises, and homemade taco seasoning, and in the eyes of people that you love, you start to see God's faithfulness. You start to see his love for you. And that's not an accident. He meant for it to be that way. And he wants us to pay attention to those things. So when you see God's faithfulness, when you start to look around you, and you see all of these little fingerprints all around you of God's love for you, the only response that we should have or that we can have as Christians is gratitude. So that's the third point today. Feasting is about gratitude. It's about enjoying with gratitude. God intends for us to enjoy things. Uh, and also in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the creation story is just like a really fun 
playful, joyful affair. Uh, and so in, in the, the Bible, it says God says things like, uh, hello, light, hello, sea, hello, sky, and then suddenly they exist. And then God says you're good because they were. Very good. Because, like we saw a minute ago, creation acts like a mirror that reflects God's glory. And if God is good, then his creation is good. Creation exists to glorify God, to point back to him. Likewise, our enjoyment of creation can glorify God, pointing us back to him and causing us to stand in wonder. I wish we had time to go through all of Psalm 104. It's so good. Uh, But like I said, I'm not going for an hour and a half today. So I'm going to kind of condense it here. Um, But it's a song of wonder at God's glory displayed in creation. It starts like this. Verse 1 of Psalm 104, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And then it goes on to describe the Lord's work in shaping mountains and valleys and seas and the springs and the streams that quench the thirst of wild animals that people never see, uh, the trees that shelter the birds. In verse 14, it says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Fourth of July. You cause the grass to grow for lives, the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. And bread to strengthen man's heart. We can find joy in our work and in consuming the fruit of our work. Also, wine isn't a sin. Uh, This psalm continues to describe God's glory displayed in the heavens and in the seasons and in the light and in the darkness. In sea creatures that exist in the bottom of the sea that nobody knows about. And in his sovereign provision for all of creation. It just kind of keeps going and going and going. Talking about these glorious, beautiful things. Uh, And then it kind of reaches like the conclusion, uh, beginning in verse 31. It says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. God himself rejoices in his works. He rejoices in the things that he has made. His creation is good and he knows it and he enjoys that. He enjoys the fact that he made something good. And he intended from the beginning for us to enjoy it as well because he loves to give good things to his children and because these good things point us back to him. But there is a caveat in this enjoyment of creation because not all enjoyment of creation glorifies God. Anyone can enjoy creation just purely for their own sake, for just making themselves happy. It's how we end up with idolatry, right? But Romans 1.25 says that God gives people over to the lusts of their hearts because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the difference. When we, when we are serving the creation itself, the thing itself, the thing that makes us happy, we're not worshiping God, we're not honoring God, we're not enjoying God. God gives us the gift of food And then we become insatiable gluttons, right? God gives us the gift of sex, and we cut that gift out of God's design to use it as we want to use it, right? We make it into a purely biological act that's just fulfilling some sort of physical or emotional need. Uh, It's like the frozen TV dinner version of covenant love, right? It is not the real thing. Over and over again, we take gifts of God and elevate them to the level of God's. This thing that I really like, I'm going to worship it. 
Or we take ourselves and we, we put ourselves up here and we worship ourselves and then we destroy and misuse the gifts that God has given us. It's one or the other. We're really creative with messing things up. Um, when we enjoy creation in such a way that the object of our joy is anything other than God, we corrupt it and it becomes an idol. God desires us to rejoice in his creation alongside of him, to rejoice in creation because it displays his glory. Uh, in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We receive God's good gifts, rejoicing that they are good, and giving thanks to God for showing us his glory and providing richly for us. The object of our joy is the creator, not his creation. And this doesn't mean that we have to turn every trip to the lake or every lunch break or every intimate moment with your spouse into some sort of like religious exercise that gets weird real quick um i heard a pastor one time uh talking about inviting people over for dinner and he said don't don't be this guy like hey can you pass the bread did you know that jesus is the bread of life no like you don't you don't have to get weird with it uh it's not about that what it does mean is that we have to remember the giver of the gift and appreciate the deeper spiritual reality of the gift this leads to an enjoyment that is filled with gratitude because you can't be thankful for something without being thankful to someone, right? It doesn't work that way. Uh, my favorite Andrew Peterson song uh, is called Don't You Want to Thank Someone and it, it kind of hits on this. Uh, it says this, don't you ever wonder why in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right and beauty abounds. Because sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see the spring has come and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Yes, it's Jesus, right? We do want to thank someone and it's Jesus. God designed it and gave it to us that we might give him the glory for it as we enjoy it. That's what we were made to do. God made us to enjoy him, right? It's, he didn't just make us to like follow the rules and hope we jump through the right hoops. He made us to enjoy him and to love him, and that's what he wants. He wants what's best for us, and that's what's best. So when we discuss the idea of Christian feasting, it's a purposeful exercise where these three things come together. We remember, and we pay attention, and we enjoy with God-centered gratitude. So I'm going to close today with some practical ideas, both for Christian feasting and for kind of our everyday sort of eating, our regular sort of meals. Every meal is not a feast, and it shouldn't be. And I definitely get that there are people in the world who, will, who never get to like, partake of an actual feast. Um, that's why I say feasting is only kind of about the food. Uh, it's about what it points us toward. So here's a few ways that the idea of feasting can influence our regular meals, where we can remember what is good and important, and we can pay attention to what is going on and to the people around us. And, uh, and honor God with the whole thing. So, uh, so some tips for everyday meals, okay? This one's going to blow your mind. Number one, sit at the table, <laughs> right? Revolutionary. Sit at the table. Um, don't sit in the living room. Sit around the table and look at each other. I know every meal can't be like this. We have jobs and things to do, right? It can't be every meal. But for at least one meal a day, Sit down at the table with your spouse or your roommate or your family or a coworker and eat together. 
right? Sit at the table. Number two, leave your phone somewhere else. Watches too, watches too, because now, now, it's, now it's the watches. And there, there are glasses too. I haven't ever actually seen anybody with the weird Google glasses, but if it connects to the internet, put it away. Um, for the 20 minutes or the 30 minutes that you sit down to eat with other people at your table, be there, right? Unless someone is dying, everything in your life can wait for 20 or 30 minutes. And while you're at it, turn off the TV. Almost every meal that I ate growing up involved the TV, and that sure can be fun. We have movie nights sometimes where we eat popcorn and watch stuff. But turn off the TV, right? Turn off the TV, put your phone somewhere else, and, um, and sit around your table with people. I know this is, it's going to be awkward. I know. It, it is legitimately, I'm not kidding, it is legitimately awkward sometimes when we're so used to just constantly being able to, like, lull in conversation. What did so-and-so post? You know, like, it's easy to do that. But you work through it. It gets better, I promise. Okay, three, give thanks... And then talk to the people at your table. It's very difficult. Uh, I don't pray at every single meal. Uh, sometimes I forget. But when we're all gathered around the table together, I usually remember. Uh, so give thanks. And then just talk to people. Ask how everybody's day went. Talk about what's going on. Interact with real people in real time. and See what happens. Uh, my hunch is that it will lead you in a life-giving direction. Because we're eliminating the distractions. We're eliminating the things that keep us from paying attention, that keep us from remembering, that keep us from enjoying with our gratitude centered on God. We're kind of putting those things away. These are things you can do with every meal. Um, shifting to talking about like an actual feast. Uh, an actual feast is just kind of like a, a supersized version of that. Um, uh, Mike Cosper's chapter on this is really great. Uh, and so he says to invite guests over and like ahead of time, Make sure everybody knows what's going on. Like, this is a feast. Here's what we're going to do, right? Like, everybody knows, everybody's on the same page. They don't show up and you, like, blindside them with, welcome to the feast. It's going to be weird. Um, and he says to invite a small crowd because the more that people that come, the, the merrier, right? It's a feast. Um, he also suggests inviting them over early to prepare the feast together. There is a spe- I've learned this over the past year and a half or so. Lexi's been teaching me how to cook. Uh, and there's a special community that happens when you're reading recipes and measuring ingredients. And, you know, like, oh, this is cool. Where'd you find this? Well, my, my grandmother always made this cake or, or whatever, you know. Um, it takes time and you got stuff all over your hands so you can't be scrolling around on your phone. Like, it's, it's real community with people. So, so he kind of like sets those things, and then uh, in his, his chapter on feasting, he lays out these six ground rules for a feast. Some of them sound the same. So his ground rules for a feast are, one, turn off your phones, right? Makes sense. Two, do not plan on counting calories, carbs, sugars, or any other nonsense. Uh, feasts are the exception, not the rule, right? We can't live our lives like this, right? You can't eat every meal as if nothing matters. It will kill you. Uh, but a feast, it's a celebration, it is a sometimes thing. Uh, one extravagant meal won't kill you. Uh, so don't, don't worry about that. Take delight. Uh, number three, this one kind of caught me off guard and I didn't, didn't understand it when I first read it. He, so he calls it the giant bowl of buttered noodles. It's for the kids, right? Don't make your kids eat their veggies at the feast, right? Don't make them try new things. Just let them enjoy it. Make a big thing of macaroni and cheese and say, here, eat as much as you want. It, you can have dessert in a minute too. Like, just like... Chill out and let them enjoy it. Uh, number four, conversations will be driven by joy. Joy, not cynicism or gossip or worry or criticism. Joy. So this means that some topics are going to be off limits for the feast. Uh, you can't make every, you know, uh, 
tense conversation topic off limit in every meal, right? Sometimes you got to have conversations about things. But for a feast, we're trying to indulge in the joy. We're trying to enjoy with God-centered gratitude. And so talking about what we think about politics and, and everything else is not going to get us to joy. So conversations will be driven by joy. And you kind of have to hold each other accountable for that. Uh, number five, plan for abundance. Cook more food than you need and serve it slowly. Enjoy it. Right? It's not a, like, don't plan anything after the feast. Plan to be at the feast for a while. Let's be together. Let's have community. Enjoy it slowly. We're going to talk about planning for abundance uh, after we're done today. Uh, number six, lighten up. This isn't a formal dining event. You're not, it's, it's cool. Let's just chill. Let's just, everybody relax a little bit and let's enjoy each other. Let's be together. Let's not worry about things uh, and try to make it too formal. And then uh, number seven, call attention to the feast. Good meals are gifts from God, and they help us remember, they help us pay attention, they help us enjoy with gratitude. So call attention to that. He suggests praying a short psalm or a liturgy as a table blessing to point, towards God, point toward God's presence among you, to remember. Be purposeful about that. We can't always like... I, mean, I guess you could read a psalm before every meal, but, you know, especially if you've got kids, you know how things go at dinner time. It's kind of crazy. But for a feast, like, hey, let's take a minute. We don't have to just, like, get all Jesus-y, like, all the time and talk about deep theological issues. But right now, like, all this is great. Let's give thanks to God for it. And then uh, his final thing that he mentions is that feasting is a practice. Just like anything else that we've discussed this summer, the more you do it, the more you figure out how to do it and how to do it well. From the cooking perspective and from the community perspective. It takes a little while to figure out how to foster this kind of environment, especially in the kind of culture that we live in. So those are his, his eight ground rules for a feast. And there are more things to, to talk about. Like I said, it's not as much about the food. It's about what it points us toward. And that's what I hope that you see from all of this. Earlier, uh, we read part of a liturgy that I love. Uh, it's called A Liturgy for Feasting with Friends uh, from a book called Every Moment Holy by Douglas McKelvey. This is a fantastic book. And they just came out with an app, too. So you can get the app. And uh, uh, they're liturgies and prayers for everyday moments uh, in life. Um, and it's, it's great. Uh, and so it's, a liturgy for feasting with friends is a beautiful reminder of what is at stake when we feast, about the whole point of the whole thing, the deeper realities of what it points to. So I want to close today by, by reading again the first part of this liturgy as a reminder so, a liturgy for feasting of friends, for feasting with friends. It says this To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are at their heart acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death and suffering and loss and sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends new and old, and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to shake ourselves free of the distractions and entertainments and the things that keep us from seeing the truth of the gospel in our day-to-day -day lives. Help us to remember 
who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to remember who we are because of it. Help us to pay attention to your hand at work in our lives in so many ways that we miss when we're distracted. God, help us to enjoy the things you have given us with gratitude that is centered on you. Lord, may you be the object of our joy. And may we be able to see reminders of your love for us in all of life. We love you and we thank you that you care enough to remind us of things. You care enough to raise up stones that we would see and remember. And uh, so Lord, we pray that you would continue this work in us. Help us to be more disciplined in drawing close to you in a purposeful way. We pray in Christ's name.